resurrected is glorious. And that's what the church is all about. It's when, when sons and daughters of the Most High God say within their heart the reality of what's taken place within their heart. It wants to be expressed outwardly. We want to declare not only to our brothers and sisters, but to our God and to all those around that we are now, yes, as I said in that clip, blood-washed sons and daughters of the Most High God who now want to live and declare and reveal to this world what it is to be a son and daughter of the Most High God. It's real. That's, that's what baptism is all about. It's real. This is really a changed life. And we're declaring it, you know. I think I said last Sunday, you know, Daryl, in the car park out here, you know, just a conversation after church. The guy gives himself to Christ. You know. Vincent, growing up in a Christian home, listening to the gospel all of his life, watching his mother, watching his father, watching his brothers and sisters, decides now, yes, mum and dad, your God is now my God. And Laura comes into the family of God's from somewhat of a, of a, you know, it really estranged, really, a lot like my growing up, you know, growing up in a home of good people who really never really acknowledged the reality of Christ. To come into the family and, you know, how, how wonderful it was that Sam could baptise his wife. How wonderful that was, you know, and to discover the reality of Christ. God bless you guys. Come here. Come here. <laughs> We just want to make a, um, just a brief presentation of our, our, our entirely stylized and unique baptism certificates. You won't get these anywhere else, you know. Vince, congratulations, man. God bless you. Laura, God bless you. Great job. And Daryl, great job, man. God bless you. Yeah. Let's pray for him, shall we? Yeah. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you are the God of our salvation. We thank you that you are the one who has started a great work and you are the one who has promised to finish that work. Lord, we stand here in this place today and these three stand in our presence, in your presence, giving testimony to the fact that that work has begun in their hearts, has begun in their lives, and they are declaring to all that they are now, well, they are yours and will always be yours and follower of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Bless them, Lord. Bless their lives, we pray. Pour your Spirit into them anew each and every day. Gift them for everything you've called them to. Pour out your love in them and through them. Give them boldness to declare the testimony of Christ's love, mercy, compassion, grace, salvation. Give them boldness, Lord. Bless their hearts, we pray that they might be a blessing to all that come their way. We pray these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ, our, their Lord and Saviour. And the church said, Amen. God bless you guys. Well done. Hey, Vince, I didn't get a hug. Man. <laughs> As I went down in the river to pray, studying about... But we are saved sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's the most important thing. You know? And for that reason, today we're going to go down to the beach and we are going to baptize four people. Saved, blood-washed, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Are we excited about that? 
And I, and I just love the diversity of the guys that are getting baptized. There's um, someone that has grown up in a Christian home. There is someone that did not grow up in a Christian home. There's someone that is older like myself, you know, who's been around for a long time, has been watching and listening, you know. Isn't it wonderful that Christ meets us where we're at, you know? When we meet him, we all meet him in exactly the same place. The solid ground of Calvary's Mount, where our Savior was lifted up and died for us. How glorious is that? How glorious is that? Studying about that good old way And who shall wear the robe and crown Good Lord, show me the way
glorious, isn't it? It really is. I, I mean, I keep saying it. That's what, we're, that's what the church is about. Not about necessarily singing songs and so on. It's about salvation. It's all about salvation. Um, let's open our Bibles, shall we? Um, if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 11 this morning. <clears throat> As you go there, I just want to read... Um, I want to read from Psalm Psalm 86. This is David. Um, he says, "Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor any, nor are there any." I'm going to start that again. It says in verse eight of Psalm 86. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. It's the psalmist declaring the greatness of God. Um, I want us to be this morning in the last few verses there of Romans chapter 11. But the scripture, I go to that psalm because it, it's a psalm declaring the greatness of God. And the scripture throughout it is constantly declaring and reminding us that we have a big God. Isn't that right? That we have a great God, you know, and, um, and we see it in the lives of the, of the saints of old, you know, and it's, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's realized in different ways. You look in the life of David, and I'm convinced that for David, the greatness of God is, is that they, he sees in God someone that will accept him. You know, David is called a man after God's own heart, but the greatness of God to David, I believe, from reading the Psalms, in the fact that there is a God who will forgive him. There is a God who will accept him. There is a God who will pour out his mercy upon his life. You know, there is a God that will change his heart. That's the psalmist, isn't it? You know, we look at Elijah and, uh, and we think of Elijah. You and I think of Elijah and we're immediately taken to Mount Carmel and we see Elijah standing on Mount Carmel before the prophets of Baal calling down fire from heaven, just revealing who God really is. And you would think that's the greatness of God. But when I read Elijah, I really think God discovered the greatness of Elijah in that cave. You know, when he's sitting there and he's thinking that God has abandoned him, thinking that nothing has worked out the way that, that he thought it was going to happen. And a voice from the darkness, I just love that scene. You know, a voice from the darkness, just, Elijah, what are you doing here? And God speaks to his heart and says, get up. And he gets up and he walks to the entrance of the cave. You know the story? And the wind is just tearing the mountain apart, you know, and the ground is quaking and the fire bursts forth upon the mountain. And Elijah sees all of this taking, happening all around him. Can you imagine what it was like being Elijah there and then? Standing there and it's just <laughs> torn apart around him. And what did he say? God wasn't in the wind and God wasn't in the earthquake and God wasn't in the fire. Where was God? Where was he? In the still, small voice. 
And God spoke to his heart and said, Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. Elijah, get back to work. Elijah, I have got 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee before Baal. Elijah, I'm in charge. That's a great God, right? Apostle Paul, where we are this morning, I, I look at him, a man who understood the enormity of it from his Hebrew background, understood the enormity of the gulf that existed between a holy, righteous God and sinful man. That gulf was so expansive within his mind, it was incomprehensible. That's why God chose him to become the gospel or the, 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 the one that would bring the gospel of grace. The grace of God that bridges that enormous gap. And, you know, Paul was always in wonder and awe of the fact that God would save us. That God has saved us. That he chose us, that he called us, that he justified us. You can hear it in Romans chapter 8, can't you? The Apostle Paul, what could separate us from the love of God? You know, he's just in awe of the greatness of God. What about you? What about you? Is it just every day getting up, going outside and just the creation all around you? God is great, you know? Or God just there intercepting in your life each and every day? Talking to Warren out there just before the service, you know. Um, Josiah, I walk into... Uh, Josiah's gone out of the room. I walk into the shopping centre and... Uh, a few months ago, and there was Josiah sitting on the sitting on that seat at the bottom below the escalator, going up into into tar towards Target. There, you know the one. Yeah, I didn't. I looked at this kid, and I thought, oh, I think I know. Yeah, I think I know that kid. I think I know that kid. I'm not sure, but I'm not in the habit of, you know, introducing myself to random kids. I, I, you got to be careful these days. You know? And I just kept on going. You know, but there's just something in my head. You know. Next day at church, I think it was, um, Daniel says, Josiah um, got lost in town yesterday and, uh, and, um, and I told him just to go and sit on the chair and wait and I'll pray that God will send someone from the church to come pass. <laughs> oh. And somebody came past. <laughs> you know, that's a great God, isn't it? He's watching out for his kids. Yeah. So we're constantly being reminded that we have a great God. In fact, knowing the majesty and the awesomeness of God is essential. You know that? It's essential that we know that he is great, that he is awesome, if we're going to face the often difficult challenges of this thing that we call life. It's so essential, you know. We see it in the lives, as I've said, in the lives of men like Moses and, and Habakkuk and Elijah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on. We look at their lives and we look at the circumstances surrounding their lives and, and you know, and it's hard, isn't it? It's hard sometimes to look at what those guys faced and what those guys went through. You know, the, very, the, often, the crucible that they so often went through, hard to understand, you know. So hard. But... They understood something. They understood who God was. They had their ups and downs, certainly. But they understood the sovereignty, the all, that God was almighty, that God was omnipotent, that God was omniscient, that God was omnipresent, that God was the eternal Lord. 
they understood that. And understanding that brings such hope, faith and resolve to our lives that we can even become like them and be a part of incredible things happening in and for the kingdom of God. We serve a great God, don't we? We do. But here's our problem. We are so often plagued, I would say, with a need to know the hows and the whys of everything. Would you confess to that? Because I do, you know. Now, God, if I'm going to follow you, God, if I'm going to serve you, you might not say it like this, but there's often a consciousness. If I'm going to serve you, God, I need to know what's going on, right? It's manifest in our prayer life. It's manifest in our struggles. I need to know what's going on, and if I'm going to serve you, I need to know so often from go to destination, how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? Well, let me promise you, if God was to do that for us, if he was to show us how it's going to happen from go to destination, I think none of you would get out of bed in the morning for fear of what you have to go through sometimes. Now, my God doesn't do that to us. Our God doesn't do that to us. He reminds us over and over again who he is and he promises us that he will be with us from go to destination, no matter what that journey may be. You know, we like to quote verses like, you know, as high as the heavens, uh, uh, um, are, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, the Lord says, than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We love to quote Isaiah 55, don't we? But you know, often, so often when we're quoting Isaiah 55 verse 9, we're quoting it from the comfort that we sit in when we look at the world around us, the unexplainable, when we are far removed from things like the third world and, and disasters that are happening all around us and people are throwing questions at us about this. And we quote Isaiah, don't we? You know, when it's far removed from the reality of our experience. And I don't say that to condemn anyone. But you know what the fundamental truth of that verse is? The fundamental truth of that statement of God to his people is simply that I am God and you are not. And you need to know that. God sees. God knows from every perspective. Well, I see, and it's so frustrating, isn't it? I see from my limited one-dimensional point of view. You know, I, I look at things from where I'm at. I see them through my own experiences. I understand them from my own emotional responses to similar things. I see them from my perspective alone, you know? But here's the thing. That sh I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't be surprised when God does things that I don't understand. I shouldn't be surprised. In fact, I should expect it, quite frankly. Because as I've just pointed out, I, you, we are simply not equipped to grasp even the simplest of events and their far-reaching consequences. None of us are. None of us are. You know, not to mention, see, we are so closed in our own little box, aren't we? Our own little, the events that surround us. And we wonder what's going on with me and how, how, how is this working out for me and how is this affecting me. But I've got no way of being able to interpret how the events of someone else's life interacting with my life and then interacting with other lives are going to affect, you know what I'm saying, the ripple effect we call it. 
You know, your cousin John from America rings you up. You've all got a cousin John from America. He rings you up, you know, and you haven't heard from him for months and he starts to talk about just how life is there and you're telling him how good life here is and it's just wonderful. It's such a great conversation that you think, oh, I've got to go and talk to Angela. I've got to go and talk to my sister here and tell her that John's doing well and everything's fine. So you jump in your car and you go driving down the road. You go around the first corner and you're so still enwrapped in the conversation that you fail to see that there's a stop sign. You drive through it a young girl comes driving from the other direction and bam you hit her you hit her you're fine you get out of the car you get out of the car and you see she's struggling you ring everyone you have to ring she ends up in hospital you end up in this horrible state of mind Angela rings John in America tells John what's just happened. John gets on the plane, comes straight across to Australia, down to Little Albany, and he comes and he sits beside you and he comforts you and he tells you about his faith in Christ. He tells you about the comfort of Christ and, and you look at John you say, you've got to go and see this girl. She needs to hear that. And she goes and he goes up and he tells this girl about the Jesus and this girl gives her life to Christ and John decides to hang around and John, see I'm going, I'm rambling aren't I? But he decides to hang around and he watches this girl and suddenly they're seeing each other once she's recovered and before you know it, they're married. It happens, doesn't it? See, you don't know. Who conceived of that story? That story is just happening in my head as I'm making it up right there. You know, but the amazing thing is, God knew, God knows. He's there every step of the way. Only a great God knows the hows and the whys, doesn't he? You know, this was God speaking to Job. We're all so familiar with Job, aren't we? And his three friends. You read through the book of Job, you know, and you go through some 30-odd chapters and, and, and you have these, th these four, including Job, pontificating as to the whys and the hows of the experiences of Job and how he ends up in the place that he is. And, and I love it because God allows it to go on some, for some 30-odd chapters, you know. He allows man to get all that he can get out and when man has stopped thinking, speaking, then God responds. You know the verse, Job 38? And it says, And the Lord answered Job, and out of the whirlwind, he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, Gird up your loins like a man, because I'm going to demand from you. I'm the one who's going to answer the, ask the questions, and you will answer me. And then he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You declare unto me, if you have understanding. And then you read the next three chapters, and some over 70 times, he's saying, Job, or he's saying to all of them, actually, where were you? What do you know about this? He talks about cosmology. He talks about oceanography. He talks about, you know, um, meteorology, astrology. He talks about genetics. He talks about the grave itself. Job, have you been to the grave? Do you understand, you know? Over and over and over again, God says, you don't know. 
You can't understand. And they're not condemning words. They're just trying to get Job to see. And, and like Job, each of us are incapable of knowing the absolute reasons of the how and the whys of life. We, we can build our peripheral reasonings to things, and we do, don't we? You know, we have a lot of this internal conversation going on. That's never good. It's never, ever good, you know. But in dealing with the greater challenges of life, we need to live in the consciousness of who God really is. He's great. He's awesome. It's been well said. The greater our view of God, the more strength we will have to face the trials of life today. But the opposite is also true. And it is the lower our view of who God is, the more likelihood it is that we will be overwhelmed by the trials of today. You know? The Apostle Paul, in this chapter that I've got you in, in Romans chapter 11, He's been unfolding God's wisdom and his plan of salvation for the Jews and the, non and the Gentiles alike. And he goes through this whole chapter and he gets to the end of it and he just gets to this point where he simply, he just explodes in worship, you know. I mean, who can figure out your ways? This is what he's saying. They are truly unsearchable. I love what J.B. Phillips uh, said. He said, if God was small enough to figure out, then he's not big enough to worship, right? And that's just true. Look at verse 33 with me. I'm sorry I've taken a long time to get here. Let's start, shall we? He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counsellor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So he goes, oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, of the knowledge of God. See, it's, it's a sense of awe, isn't it? That is overwhelming, Paul. And it's moving. It really it moves you. He's looking into the sovereignty of God and he's simply surrendering to it. Lord, you're in charge, you know. Oh, the depth of your wisdom, oh, the depth of your knowledge. You, you just get to the point, people, don't you? You get to a point where you're just not going to figure it out sometimes. You know, we get, in our, we get in our little booths and we argue back and forwards over, over you know, the, the, the sovereignty of God versus, you know, the res human responsibility. And, and we get in that argument. And, you know, I tell you what, we've been arguing about that since. Since the beginning. And we'll keep on arguing about that until the end. You know, Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. The problem is we just do not know or understand the depth of the mind of God to be able to truly answer that to any human satisfaction. I think without getting it, I think God's somewhere in the middle there. I really do. But that's another Bible study. 
All I know is that when we go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards over, you know, those sorts of issues, we get to a point where our brain just goes, doesn't it? It just does. You know? You get to the point and you just go, well, here I am. Here I am. And this is all I know. He saved me. That's where it gets to. He pulled me out of the filth of this world and I know I don't deserve it, but now I know I'm bound for heaven. Yet between here and there, all I can do is what Paul is describing here is surrender. It's all I can do. As the scripture says that he knows everything that could be known. He knows everything that has been. He knows everything that will be. And he always has. That's the thing that just... And if a person is smart, if I am smart, if you are smart, you will come to that simple conclusion. He is God and I am not. He's in heaven and I'm upon the earth. He is and I am only because he is. Does that make any sense to you? Paul says, oh, the depth. I'm going to read this a few times. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. That word unsearchable, inscrutable. It means beyond human understanding. How beyond human understanding are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And because he alone knows why everything is, that means many things that will happen, we are simply not going to understand them. That's why it says there, in fact, they are past finding out. It literally means they are untraceable. Untraceable. We serve the untraceable God. I sat there last night and thought, what can I call this message this morning? You know. Yeah, there it is. Untraceable. It's a good movie title, isn't it? But so often, we try to find out the reasons for the path that we're on, that we might be able to follow it more, more comfortable with our own understanding of how things should be. But again... A God that you can work out, he's not God at all. A God that you can understand to that degree is not God at all, which means we come to him by faith. We believe, right? We believe and we trust. That's what faith is. You can't, you can't just have belief because the Bible tells us the devil believes and does what? He trembles. No, we believe and trust. That's faith. We trust what we believe. That word believe means we lean the entire weight of our being upon that truth that is God. We rest everything that we are upon him and we trust it for every aspect of our lives. See, I could say, Warren... God bless you, Warren, gave us this. He had this made for us. It looks good. 
right? I believe, actually, that this could hold me up. I really do. Do you want me to try it? No. But you don't trust it, do you? Because I don't trust it either. I, I know it can hold me. It's made of good, solid metal. It can hold my weight, but I don't trust it because it's going to go this way, it's going to go that way. If you came to this church half an hour before the service, you would have found me standing on top of the top rung of a ladder right there trying to get that projector back in alignment, you know. I, I believed the ladder could hold me. But, you know, I was stupid because I really wasn't trusting it, you know. I had no faith that I was going to stay up there. Um, but I'm, I'm digressing here. We believe, don't we? We have faith in God, right? So what I'm, I'm, I'm digressing like this because I want us to understand we can't intellectualize him, you know. We can't reduce him to a creed. We can't put him in a box and say, this is how God works. No, he is past finding out. He is untraceable. Sometimes he will have, and I've said this to you before, sometimes he will have us to step out onto the water and walk, right? And you might say, well, that's just impossible. And he will have you walk in places that you would think are impossible. I know in this room, God has called some of you to walk in places that you would have previously thought impossible to stand, places that your heart would not willingly allow you to go but, or wish it upon anybody else. But God has called you to stand there. And you have stood there with the comfort and encouragement of brothers and sisters and family members. You have stood there where nobody else wants to stand and God has had you remain there. He's had you walk there and by faith you have lived there and by faith you have walked and been strengthened by a great and an awesome God. Isn't that right? Am I, is that right? You have known. I tell you, some of you have experienced a rarefied atmosphere. One where, if not for God, you wouldn't exist. One where, if it were not for God, you wouldn't continue. It's that rarefied atmosphere of knowing an absolute reliance upon Him. It's like standing on the top of Everest, you know, and knowing there's just no oxygen here to keep me alive. It's like standing on the surface of the moon and knowing there is, no, there is no atmosphere here to keep me alive. But God, who is greater than all, can keep me alive, can't he? Wherever it may be, he can do it, you know. It's a rarefied atmosphere, isn't it? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know some of you know this, you know. And no one will ever tell you that God is not great. No one will ever tell you that God cannot keep you. No one will ever tell you that God will abandon you. No one will ever tell you that, will they? Will they? Well, they might try. But you serve a great God. And along with the Apostle Paul, you cry out in worship to this God. 
Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counsellor? Isaiah would say in a similar way, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed to him the ways of understanding. The thought is very simple. Who could tell God something that he doesn't know? It's very simple. Which means to argue with God or to demand God to do something or stop something based upon my own reason. Futile. Paul bows in awe, excuse me, of the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom. In, in this passage, he's been considering, I said to you in the beginning, the awesomeness of God's salvation for the lost human race. He's talked about the miracle of justification. That God was able to take a sinful human being corrupted by sin and purify them and cleanse them, make them righteous, make them whiter than snow that they can come back into his holy, perfect presence. And not only that, he's talked about the miracle of the sanctification. I can't say that word quickly. The sanctification of God. And that God is doing this transforming work. Well, positionally, this is what blows his mind. Positionally, we are justified in the presence of God. But practically, no, that work is still taking place. And we are being sanctified. That's what Romans chapter 8 is talking about. And at the same time, he also says, but we are glorified. The work's finished. The work's done. And he's been talking about this amazing, amazing salvation. And his final conclusion to it all is, what possibly can I tell God when it comes to how my life should go? What possibly can I add to the wonder of the work that he has already wrought? See, to his mind, the Apostle Paul, it's absolute arrogance to suggest that we can instruct God in how our life should go. You know, have you ever done that? God, I think we need to do some revision here. Have you ever been there? Of course we have. But to the contrary of that, the Apostle Paul finds hope for the future in simply knowing that God is great and God knows. Yeah. He is Lord what do you want me, hear that? What do you want me to do in my life? It's not, Lord, what I want you to do in my life. You know? who, who was it that said the purpose of prayer is to get the will of God in heaven done, not the, on, in, on earth, not the will of man done in heaven? Who was it that said that? Whoever they were, they were smart and they were right. The, perfect, the purpose of prayer is to get the will of heaven, of God, done upon the earth. You know? 
What do you want to do in my life, Lord? That's surrender. So let me read it again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how his ways pass finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counsellor or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. Or who, that final verse there, has given to God something that God should have to repay him. You see, what Paul is saying here is that no one can ever come before God and say, you owe me something. You owe me. No one can ever say to God, you've cheated me. No one can ever say to God, I have earned your favour here. No, no, no. We've got to get things in perspective when we start to think like that. You know, I said at camp last week, I said, I can't believe we live in this part of the world in this time of history. You know, I often say to Donna, it's just amazing. We live in the best corner of the world and probably one of the best times in human history. You know, you could have been a peasant that was born in, born in 13th century Europe. Then you'd be smiling a lot, wouldn't you? Plague all around and average age 30 if you're an old man. Most kids dying at birth and if you're lucky to become a teenager, if you survive birth, you know. But here we are in this beautiful part of the world with the most incredible provision that man has ever known, you know. And we still say, God... You owe me. God, this is not right. God, this is not fair. We've got to get things into perspective. He saved me. He redeemed me. He restored me. And he did it by becoming one of us. Here's the perspective. He did it by becoming one of us. In the Father's wisdom, the Son died the excruciating death of a Roman cross. He was the just dying for the unjust. He was the sinless one bearing the sins of the sinful world. He became one of us to die for us. You see, a mortal man cannot pay an infinite price for sin. But being the infinite God, he alone could pay the infinite price to secure an eternal salvation. That's God's wisdom. It's incredible. No one can say to God anywhere, God, you owe me. No one. Paul was a great man of God. But I think he was a bit prickly, you know? I think Paul, I just can't wait to meet Paul. I really can't, you know? But I don't think he was always that pleasant to be around. Because if you came to Paul whinging about your lot in life, man, what do you think he would say? Have you been beaten? Have you been scourged? Have you been stoned? Have you been dragged out of the city and left for dead? Have you been shipwrecked in the ocean? Have you been bitten by serpents? Have you... Nah. 
No, 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 no. See, so I'm just trying to bring perspective here to us who have a tendency to gripe. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us, you know. That's why he says, he simply says, for in him and through him, to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what he's saying? He's saying that Christ is the source of all things. You know? He's the source of all things. All things come from him. He's the sustainer of all things. You know, all things are through him. And he is the destiny of all things. All things are unto him. See, if you have Jesus, you have all things, Christian. If you have Jesus, you have all things. And that's why Paul cannot contain himself here. This man that has beaten, this man that has been scourged, this man that has been shipwrecked, this man that has been rejected by all of the society around him that once lifted him up and praised him. Everyone has turned their back on him. Everyone. Do you remember? Could you imagine being Paul turning your back, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, turning his back on the Pharisaical life that he lived where he was extolled and lifted up and held in highest of virtues to be condemned by them, to be hated by them, to become a Christian, at the same time the Christians wouldn't trust him the Christians wouldn't have anything to do with him because he was the persecutor of the Christians and so this man who finds this incredible grace in God is suddenly alone in the world it's just me and Jesus and it didn't get any easier from that point forward but the thing that he couldn't get beyond was the fact that God saved him God saved him. And that's how we should be. Because none of us have known those sorts of alienations. None of us have faced those sort of brutalities. And I know it's all about, it's all about relativeness. I know that. And I know I'm rambling now. And everybody's pain is relative. But at the same time, the one consistent thing it's the depth of the love and the power of God's salvation in a person's life. That's it. Everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and ultimately everything will return to him. I think it was Augustine who said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. You like that statement? All right. I've hammered it, haven't I? I really have, I know. Is God awesome? Is God great? He is? Wonderful. Where are you today? Where are you today? And I'm not asking for an answer. Wherever you are today, just know that He is there with you. Just know that His love and his wisdom and his understanding goes deeper. Just know that. Can someone tell me the time? 25 to 12. Have you got, have you got time? Have we got five, ten minutes? Could I trouble you for? To gather around the communion table? Because this is where it is all expressed. 
This is where it's all realised. If you have to leave, I understand. Please feel free to get going. But I would have you, if you can, just to pause for a moment. He's bigger than we imagine God is. You know, his, his presence fills the universe. You know. He's more powerful than we can even begin to know, wiser than all the wisdom that has ever been a, a, attributed to any, any human being. His love is beyond any human understanding of love. His grace has no limits. His mercy is forever renewed. His holiness is infinite and His ways are past finding out. He is the one true God who has no beginning and he has no end. He created all things that exist by his divine power. He has no peers. He, gives advi he takes advice from no one. He is God, right? He is God. And he veiled himself in human flesh. And he walked amongst men he became just, well, not like us. Because he's not like us. But he took on the form of man. He became like a servant, the Bible tells us, even to the point of death. He walked with us. He felt what we felt. I, I, that, that God that I just described... Do you ever stop and do this little mental exercise? That, that God that I just described allowed himself to be loved by man, but at the same time allowed himself to be rejected by those who claim to love him. That God, that infinite wisdom and understanding, the one who cast the stars into existence, the one whom Colossians tells us holds or by him all things consist or by him all things are held together. The power that holds this physical universe together. That same one allowed himself to be handled by the strength of men and thrown down and beaten and abused and nailed to a cross by the strength of a human hand pounding that nail in. Think about it. He acquiesced in a sense. And why? Why? So that he could become our substitute. That's why. You know the gospel story. And that's what this cup represents. So this morning, as we take this bread that represents his body, realize who it was who went to the cross for you. I would ask you this morning to see him not in light of the brutality that was raged against him, but to see him from this perspective of who he really is. Your God. Your King. Your Saviour. And when we take this cup that represents his shed blood, the same again. You know, 
So will you pray with me? Father in heaven, how awesome you are. Father in heaven, I, I pray, Lord God, that the heart of the man, Paul, that was able to, by the inspiration of your spirit, surrender, Lord, would be, Father, how do I say this? Would be our hearts, by the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would surrender and we would understand just how great our God is and just how much our God loves us. We take this emblem, Lord, this piece of bread that represents his body, the bread of life that we partake of, that brings life to our souls, Lord. Thank you for this life, Lord. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. And for the blood, Lord God, that cleanses us and washes us clean, that this very day continues to flow over us, continues, Lord God, Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you that even you submitted to the will of the Father to show us what it is to submit to a great and awesome God. Thank you, Lord, that you are in charge and that your way is the right way. And this blood testifies not only of that, but that your way is the only way. Let's take the cup together. Amen. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Jesus, your 